Hi, this is Jose Figueroa with an Approved Workman, where we are rightly dividing the word of truth. Welcome to another week of Bible study. I am so glad you're here as we open up God's word one more time. Our current series is Living Hope, a study of the book of 1 Peter. If you're new to this Bible teaching ministry, here's how you can learn more about it. First, go to our website, www.anapprovedworkman.org. That's anapprovedworkman.org. On the website, you can learn more about the purpose of this ministry, our approach to Bible study, and also review our statement of faith. You can subscribe to the podcast. Uh, which is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Amazon Music, as well as other podcast directories. On the website also, you can listen to previous episodes of our current series on 1 Peter or any episodes from our previous Bible study series. If you are on social media, you can connect with an approved workman there too. I'm on Instagram at an approved workman. Our Pinterest profile is pinterest.com slash an approved workman. And our Facebook page is facebook.com slash inapprovedworkman215. Finally, if you're watching the video version of this lesson, make sure you subscribe to our channel on either YouTube or Rumble to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes. Today, we are in lesson number 10 in the series Living Hope from the book of 1 Peter. This study is part one of our series, Strangers and Pilgrims, which covers 1 and 2 Peter. The lesson is titled, Living in Readiness, part one, and our focus passage is 1 Peter chapter five, verses one through seven. Please find your way in your Bible to that passage. In chapter five, Peter exhorts both elders and church members to stay humble and to stand firm. As I thought about our lesson for this week, the concept of military readiness came to mind as an appropriate illustration. And since we are in 2023, I did not just Google the term military readiness. Instead, I asked ChatGPT, the artificial intelligence engine, about it. Here's what it said. Military readiness refers to the state of preparedness and capability of a nation's armed forces to carry out their assigned missions effectively and efficiently. It encompasses a wide range of factors, resources, and conditions that enable a military to respond to various threats and challenges, including personal readiness, doctrine and strategy, morale and welfare, and interoperability. Military readiness is not static and can vary over time due to changes in geopolitical situations, budget constraints, equipment upgrades, and ongoing training and development efforts. Maintaining a high level of military readiness is essential for a nation's security and its ability to respond to emerging threats and crisis. End of quote. That's the end of Chat 
GPT's response on defining military readiness. So what do we know? Military readiness is critical, essential for any nation. It must be maintained, sustained. It is not something that just happens. For our discussion today, as we focus on the church's, the believer's readiness, I wanted to focus on the human aspect of this concept of military readiness. Because remember, as Christians, we are engaged in a spiritual battle. So first, here's what ChatGPT also had to say specifically about personnel readiness. Quote, this aspect involves having a well-trained, disciplined, and motivated military force. It includes ensuring that soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines are physically fit, proficient in their assigned duties, and mentally prepared for combat or other operations. End quote. Then, on the aspect of morale and welfare, here's what ChatGPT said, quote, The well-being and morale of military personnel are crucial for readiness. Factors such as adequate compensation, health care, housing, and family support can impact the overall effectiveness of a military force, end quote. In other words, the troops must be ready, and someone must take good care of them to keep them ready. Otherwise, the overall readiness and safety of the nation would be at risk. In our previous episode, we concluded our study of 1 Peter chapter 4. In this chapter, Peter encourages believers to purposely live for the will of God. As believers, we should always remember that our Christian lives should be lived according to the will of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. It is necessary for us to have a different attitude in life, a different purpose in mind, and a different way to spend our time while we still have that time. As a matter of review, let's go through the principles and applications from our teaching from 1 Peter chapter 4. We started with our first division, verses 1 through 6, renounce sinful behavior. The principle, living for God's will, requires a definite break with sin. Living for God's will requires a definite break with sin. Our application questions, what sinful behavior must you renounce today? And what help do you need to honor your commitment? We need to be done with living under the power of sin. We must be different than unbelievers. And we must remember our identity in Christ. Our second division, which was part two of our teaching, was resolved to be a good steward. Verses 7 through 11 of First Peter chapter 4. Our principle, living for God's will, requires a definite commitment to serve Him and His people. Living for God's will requires a definite commitment to serve Him and His people. Our application questions, what spiritual gifts have you received? And how are you using those gifts for the glory of God and the good of others? We must redeem our time for Christ. Then finally, our third division from 1 Peter 4, 
rest in a faithful creator. Verses 12 through 19. Our principle, living for God's will, requires a definite trust in him regardless of circumstances. Living for God's will requires a definite trust in him regardless of circumstances. How are you demonstrating your trust in God as you endure suffering for the sake of Christ's name? We must rejoice in our inheritance with Christ. If you missed that previous teaching from 1 Peter 4, I encourage you to listen to the podcast episode or watch the video of that lesson. In today's lesson, we begin our study of 1 Peter chapter 5. This will close our study of Peter's first letter. And after everything Peter has said in the previous sections of this particular letter, he wants his audience to stand firm and in an attitude of readiness as they look forward to the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his commentary on 1 Peter, Dr. Warren Wiersbe tells us about the criticality of godly leadership for the health and readiness of a congregation. Quote, Times of persecution demand that God's people have adequate spiritual leadership. If judgment is to begin at God's house, then that house had better be in order, or it will fall apart. This explains why Peter wrote this special message to the leaders of the church, to encourage them to do their work faithfully. Peter was concerned that the leadership in the local churches be at its best. When the fiery trial will come, the believers in the assemblies would look to their elders for encouragement and direction. End quote. Here's our lesson outline and goal for our teaching from 1 Peter chapter 5, Living in Readiness. We have two divisions. First, stay humble, verses 1 through 7, and then stand firm, verses 8 through 14. And our goal for the teaching from 1 Peter chapter 5 is this, to encourage believers to remember that while we are in this world, we ought to live humbly with one another while standing firm in our faith until the glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the goal for the teaching from 1 Peter 5 is this, to encourage believers to remember that while we're all in this world, we ought to live humbly with one another while standing firm in our faith until the glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's get started then and go to our first division from 1 Peter 5, Stay Humble, verses 1 through 7. Therefore, I urge elders among you, as your fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and one who is also a fellow partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not with greed, but with eagerness nor yet as domineering over those assigned to your care, but by proving to be examples to the flock. Verse 4. 
and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You, younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, having cast all your anxiety on him because he cares about you. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 7. In verse 1, Peter begins this chapter with therefore, pointing us back to the end of chapter 4. That section was focused on how believers who are under heavy persecution share in the sufferings of Christ and how they can endure suffering like he did. He's the example. And that context of suffering and endurance is in the background as Peter continues with his letter. And he begins this section with a particular focus on the elders of the church. He has a word for them. But before we get into that specific exhortation, let's answer this question. What is an elder in the context of the New Testament? According to the Bible Sense Lexicon, here is the definition. A Christian elder is an elder over an assembly of Christian believers as an appointed or elected position. End quote. In the Lexham Bible Dictionary, we find a summary of the responsibility of the elders in the New Testament church. Quote, the functions of an elder were centered on taking care of the church. 1 Timothy 3.5 Elders most likely were responsible for caring for the people in the sense of administration and pastoral care. These roles may be identified with the gifts of administration or leadership. End quote. And again, this is in the Lexan Bible Dictionary, an article entitled Elder by William M. Victor. Previously, in our study of 1 Peter, we saw that he identified himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 1.1. He did that to establish his credentials and authority to write this letter to them. But now, as he's working on closing the letter, he takes a slightly different approach. He's going to use three different terms for himself. I believe Peter wants to address these leaders as one who understands them and shares in the same responsibilities they have as they care for God's people. So let's look at this. First, he refers to himself as a fellow elder. If you recall, during Peter's restoration with Jesus, Jesus called him to feed my sheep. Look at John chapter 21, beginning in verse 15. Now, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than this? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. 
He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. Verse 17. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. John 21, verses 15 through 17. So, three times, Jesus called them to take care of his people, to tend my lambs, to shepherd my sheep, to tend my sheep. So Peter understands exactly what that entails. He was personally assigned to do that. The second term Peter uses that he appeals to the elders as one who saw Jesus suffering firsthand. Peter was an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ. And again, this entire letter has been uh, covered with the discussion of suffering because the audience, they're going through extreme persecution and it's about to get worse. Peter saw what the Savior endured even as he denied him three times. So Peter understands great suffering and he can relate to them in that level. Finally, Peter tells him that he's also a fellow partaker of the glory that it is to be revealed at the second coming of Christ. So what's Peter saying by telling them that he's a fellow elder, that he is a witness of Christ's suffering, that he's a fellow partaker of the glory that awaits them? He wants them to have the right frame of mind as they take care of God's people. If I were to paraphrase what Peter is saying, it would be something like this. I totally understand what you have been called to do. I have been doing it for a while, and I know what enormous challenges you're facing. I know that this calling is not easy. It involves great suffering, but I know we can look at Jesus' example to persevere. We get to share in his sufferings for his people. And I also know that our future glorification makes it all worthwhile. Suffering is temporary. Glory is eternal. With that mindset, as we move ahead to verse 2, he wants them to focus on their primary responsibility to shepherd their flock, the people of God among them, to take good care of them. How are they to do this? First, they are called to exercise oversight over the members of the church. That phrase carries the meaning of one who watches over, directs, cares, and is accountable for an assembly of believers. That comes from the Bible Saints lexicon. And this is a responsibility that it is not carried out out of compulsion, because of guilt, or because you have been forced into it. No, this is a calling and something you're doing willingly. This is a warning against laziness on the part of the shepherd. If you have to be guilted into taking care of your people, you're not going to do a very good job. And maybe, just maybe, you should find something else to do with your life. 
the elders are also to shepherd the people according to the will of God. They are his people, so they should be treated and guided in the same manner that Christ himself would. Furthermore, greed should not be their motivation. The New Testament has many examples of the apostles warning against false teachers who are only interested in enriching themselves through the ministry. And by the way, that is not just a first century problem, it's a problem today. In his Bible commentary, Dr. John MacArthur speaks on how greed is a key motivator for false teachers. He says, quote, false teachers are always motivated by a second danger, money, and use their power and position to rob people of their wealth. 2 Peter 1, 1-3 Scripture is clear that churches should pay their shepherds well. But a desire for undeserved money must never be a motive for ministers to serve. End quote. Lack of greed is a key qualification for elders in the pastoral epistles. See, for example, 1 Timothy 3.8, Titus 1.7. Instead of being motivated by greed, the shepherds should approach their calling with nothing but eagerness. It should be their joy and privilege to shepherd God's people. In his Bible commentary on 1 Peter, Dr. Wiersbe speaks about the tension between being an overseer over the people while also being one of them among the people. He says, quote, The effective pastor needs both relationships. He must be among his people so that he can get to know them, their needs and problems. And he needs to be over his people so he can lead them and help them solve their problems. There must be no conflict between pastoring and preaching because they're both ministries of a faithful shepherd. The preacher needs to be a pastor so he can apply the word to the needs of the people. The pastor needs to be a preacher so that he can have authority when he shares in their daily needs and problems. The pastor is not a religious lecturer who weekly passes along information about the Bible. He is a shepherd who knows his people and seeks to help them through the word. End quote. Moving ahead to verse 3 of 1 Peter 5. In addition, shepherds are not to be domineering, exercising undue control over the people assigned to them. Instead, they should be an example to them on how to live the Christian life. And I believe, here, Peter speaks from experience. I believe that the words he uses here are not chosen at random. When he walked with the Lord Jesus, Peter and the other disciples constantly argued about who was the greatest among them. In response to these arguments, Jesus always emphasized the upside nature of his kingdom and the expectations he had for leaders in following his example in shepherding 
his people. One of these incidents is recorded in the Gospel according to Mark, and it happened after James and John sought the honor of sitting on either side of Jesus in the kingdom to come. This happened even as Jesus was focused on his upcoming Passion Week. Here's how Jesus responded, reading in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 42. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles domineer over them, and their people in high position exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. Rather, whoever wants to become prominent among you shall be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 42-45 Domineering people, abusing people, that's the pagan, the unbelievers way. Christians, and especially leaders, are to be different. Serve people. Give your best for them. Invest your life in them. Give your life for them. That's what Jesus did. That's what his shepherds should do. Selfless service to his people for his sake. In his Bible study guide for 1 Peter, Dr. N.T. Wright speaks on what makes a good shepherd. He says, quote, In a rural economy, it's hardly surprising that this is one of the standard images for the way in which either God himself or the anointed king is to look after the sheep. The best shepherds aren't thinking, how can I be a shepherd? But how can I best look after the sheep? The focus of the good shepherd is not only on his or her own qualities, but on the need of and potential dangers for those they're looking after. End quote. Moving ahead to verse 4. If these shepherds follow through in the proper way, when the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, appears, they will receive their reward, the unfading crown of glory. Their rewards are not temporal or earthly, but eternal and heavenly. That should be their focus, and those rewards will come from Jesus Christ himself. I cannot help but to return to a quote from Dr. Wearsby regarding this idea. And we saw this when we look at chapter 2, specifically verse 25, when Peter uh, referred to Jesus first as the shepherd and overseer of his people. And Dr. Wearsby speaks on that. He says, quote, The shepherd, speaking of Jesus, went out to search for the lost sheep, he died for the sheep. Now that we have been returned to the fold and are safely in his care, he watches over us lest we stray and get into sin. The word bishop simply means one who watches over, who oversees. And just as the elder bishop oversees the flock of God, the local church, so the Savior in glory watches over his sheep to protect them and perfect them. End quote. 
the authority of the elders then is a delegated authority from Jesus himself. Their focus is to protect the people and help them in their sanctification journey by properly caring for and feeding them with the word of God. In his Bible commentary on 1 Peter, Dr. R.C. Sproul speaks on the primary responsibility of the shepherd. He says, quote, Today, a pastor is expected to be a psychologist, theologian, biblical scholar, administrator, preacher, teacher, and community leader. The minister spends so much time on secondary matters that he has little time to do his principal work, which is to feed the sheep through preaching and teaching. The greatest service your minister can do for you is to feed you, not with his opinion, but with the word of God. End quote. Moving ahead to verse 5, Peter is not done. Now he turns his attention to the sheep, the members of the church. He starts by encouraging the younger men, really younger people, both men and women, in the church to submit to the authority of the elders in humility. I think it's very natural for younger people to question and reject the authority of the elders. They don't agree with the way things are done or with what music is chosen for worship or what kind of sermons they hear. But the Lord has established a hierarchy for his church. There is an order. And unless there is an issue of sin on the part of the preacher or heresy, we all should be in humble submission to those who are our overseers. We can have differences of opinion, but in the end, humble submission to authority is the best path towards unity. Listen to Paul's encouragement to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. But we ask you, brothers and sisters, to recognize those who diligently labor among you and are in leadership over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you regard them very highly in love because of their work. Leave in peace with one another. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13. In fact, Peter says that everyone in the congregation, even the elders, are to clothe themselves with humility towards one another. That is a very meaningful phrase. In his Bible commentary, Dr. MacArthur speaks on what this means. He says, quote, To be clothed literally means to tie something on oneself with a knot or a bow. This term was often used of a slave putting on an apron over his clothes in order to keep his clothes clean. Humility is literally low-mindedness, an attitude that one is not too good to serve. End quote. That image should also bring to our minds the scene where Jesus humbly washed his disciples' feet on the same night he will be betrayed and left alone. Do you get the picture 
What is humility then? Here's what we get from the Lexham Theological Wordbook. Quote, Humility can refer to a state of being, generally lowness in status rank or economic means. In this sense, humility is the opposite of importance or wealth. It can also refer to a virtue that involves a modest self-perception. In this sense, it is the opposite of pride and arrogance. This comes again from the Lexham Theological Wordbook, an entry called Humility by G. Scott Gleaves and Douglas Mangum, among others. That last part of the definition is in our focus here, the opposite of pride and arrogance. Why is this important? Because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Here, Peter is quoting from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, which reads, Though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the needy. Psalms 138.6 says, For the Lord is exalted, yet he looks after the lowly, for he knows the haughty from afar. If you succumb to pride, soon you will find yourself in opposition to God. He dwells with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. Isaiah 57.15 He dwells with the humble. Notice also how the quoted verse in Proverbs adds the notion of God mocking the proud or the scoffers. In his commentary on the New Testament use of the Old Testament, Dr. D.A. Carson speaks on this aspect. He says, quote, Mockers inevitably think of themselves as strong and sneer with condescending derision at those whom they judge to be weak. But God, who is immeasurably strong, holds them in derision and mocks them, giving grace to the humble who alone are wise. End quote. Moving ahead to verses 6 and 7 of 1 Peter 5. Again, everyone should humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. Why? Because he will exalt them at the proper time. We must submit to him and submit to one another in humility. All believers should strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Ephesians 4, 1-3. Believers are under great persecution and oppression. So, fighting each other doesn't make sense. No, they need to stay together in readiness, standing as one man together, as in Philippians 1.27. And remember, the way to, to unity, no uniformity, unity, the way to unity is humility. And together, all believers can cast all their anxiety on him because he cares about them. Listen to Psalms 55, verse 22, which Peter is quoting here partially. Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Dr. Sproul speaks on what it means to cast all our burdens on the one who welcomes them using the imagery of a fishing net. He says, quote, The net must be thrown, 
it is weighted down so that it will sink and fish will swim into it and get caught. Here, this metaphor of casting is used with respect to our anxieties and concerns, the things that weigh us down. Peter says that we're to cast all such cares upon God and we're to do so because he cares for us. God says that we're to take all such care and throw it to him because he is the God who cares. Sometimes we feel that nobody cares. If you feel that nobody cares, this is the text you must read to be reminded that the God we serve is a God who cares for us. End quote. The Lord Jesus described himself as gentle and humble in heart, Matthew 11, 28 and 29. How can we be more like him? Dr. Carson speaks on the antithesis between pride and humility that is so prevalent in scripture. He says, quote, the first responsibility of the creature is to recognize his, his or her creatureliness and therefore live in dependence upon and with worship toward the Creator and Sovereign of all. The only alternative is the proud independence that is nothing other than utterly destructive idolatry, the arrogance that finally brings down God's displeasure. This theme lies at the heart of the Bible's storyline and of God's plan of redemption, brought to fulfillment in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ and to consummation at the end. end quote. The cross of Christ, his ultimate humiliation, but also his moment of coronation and through the resurrection, his exaltation to the right hand of the Father, where he is Lord of all. Jesus Christ is Lord. If he humbled himself, should we be expected to do less than he did? I don't think so. He is our example, and we should be humble for his sake. Humility towards him, humility towards one another. So here's the question. How are we treating one another? How can we withstand the outside pressures if we are distracted by internal discord driven by pride? What say you? Well, that is the end of this first division in 1 Peter chapter 5. What is our principle? In God's kingdom, humility is the way to unity and readiness. In God's kingdom, humility is the way to unity and readiness. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, loving, compassionate, and humble. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but given a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you would inherit a blessing. 1 Peter 3 verses 8 and 9. How are you relating to those the Lord has assigned to your care? How are you relating to those the Lord has put in authority over you? This concludes part one of our teaching from 1 Peter chapter 5. 
thank you for being here today. Next time, we will focus on our second and final division from this chapter. The topic, Stand Firm, verses 8 through 14. Until then, this is Jose Figueroa for In a Proof Workman, where we are rightly dividing the word of truth. May God richly bless.